Welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast, where we teach you how to make a better investment and retirement portfolio. Our goal is to explain everything from basic to advanced concepts in plain language that you can understand, whether you are a beginning investor or a professional. Hello, listeners. Today, Garrett Baldwin is with us. No, he is not one of the Baldwin brothers, but Garrett is the founding managing editor of the Alpha Pages. That's an online news platform focused on the alternative investment space. Additionally, Garrett is the editor of Modern Trader, a new magazine launching this month in which contributors are doing us all a favor. They are focusing on actionable insight, credibility, and accountability in markets, something we desperately need. Garrett's latest story is called False Profits, How Financial Technology is Saving Investors from the Financial Pundits. Modern Trader will be available in print form for the first time on June 23rd at Barnes & Noble, and they will be highlighting the Tingo community in the article. Additionally, Alpha Pages is up right now at alphapages.com. Garrett, welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast. Great to be with you. I love what Tingo's doing these days. Yeah, thanks, Garrett. We're uh, trying. <laughs> We're trying to really improve the dialogue of current financial conversation, which it sounds like modern traders doing just that. So we asked Garrett to be on our show today because he is a financial journalist and an academic. He has direct insights into one of the most difficult concepts for both experienced and new investors. Trading and investing are some of the few disciplines left where we can't really be taught in a classroom. It takes both self-study and self-experience to grow and become better. But that poses a problem for us, a serious problem. How do we self-study? No matter how many books you read, it will not help you understand current market themes or the latest ideas and studies. Many of us follow top investors and traders, whether it's Warren Buffett or Paul Tudor Jones. But even that leaves us with many gaps. So to fill these gaps, many of us become consumers and voracious readers of financial news and articles. For both the new and experienced investor, this presents a huge problem because how do we read and interpret news? Often we'll see two differing opinions on the same topic or a news story that completely flips in the middle of the day. So Garrett, the billion dollar question, where do we start? Well, I think the easiest thing to do is you you, you start the most basic premise, which is you read and you read a lot and you read even more. Uh, it is a it's not necessarily that you can't learn how to be a good investor in the academic environment. It's just simply that you need to really truly understand that if you're going to be a, a trader, you need to make that 100 percent part of your life. It needs to you, you need to understand that on a daily basis, uh, people when you wake up at five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning, someone has already started at three o'clock in the morning. It is a it is a crunch to be able to really truly understand how to budget your time. It is a true crunch to understand what sources you need to read. And it takes time. The thing that's so important is that you need to really hone in on who who is it that you trust? What are the sources of information that you're going to use on a daily basis to find good insight for you to make actionable decisions? Uh, and finally, you know, really the most important aspect is that you determine that information is credible. It all starts with your ability to know who is credible. And for me, I have I've had I've been very successful because I've worked with people who have given me good in- insight and good recommendations over the years. The best advice that I was ever given was by Jim Rogers. Now everybody knows Jim Rogers. He's notoriously anti-dollar and he's a gold bull. But when you pull back the layers of the onion and uh, advice that he's given to readers over the years, all the books that he's written, it came down to one simple piece of advice that he gave me during an interview in 2011. And it was to pretend that you only had 20 trades in your lifetime. If you only had 20 trades to make from the time that you're 25 until you're 65, 
what are you going to do? You're not going to jump in and out of the markets. You're not going to trade uh, rashly. You're going to choose every single company with a lot of due diligence. You're going to spend a lot of time reading, and you're really going to judge ahead of time whether or not this is a good decision. So don't don't simply just jump in and out because you know you think that something's the the next hottest trend in in the markets. It's really to take your time, um, you know, know that you don't need to make a trade every single day, and you know, to to spend to spend a significant amount of time doing the research that is necessary uh, to maximize the long term value of your trades. To my listeners right now, uh, I don't know if Garrett realized it, but he just did something incredibly profound. He identified Jim Rogers' biases. He understood he was bullish gold, bearish against the dollar, but he still found a way to get Jim Rogers' underlying message, understand his process, his idea, and then use that to teach himself. And that really comes from Garrett's experience being in the industry, how long he's been following markets. And what he said is, I think, amazing direct advice. Um, One that I I think many of us will start with is just reading as much as we can. But as you identified, you know, what I really like about Jim Rogers is that you only have 20 trades. Focus on it, read on it, get everything you can. That's one of 20 shots you have. And I think that's a really profound statement in the level of work you need to do when you come up with a trade idea. Absolutely. I think that this takes some time to develop, but there are some things we can do to sort of catalyze the process. You know, we all know it's going to take many, many hours to understand good journalism and, and hold people accountable. But is there anything that we could do that would be helpful for us to sort of catalyze this process? I personally think one thing would be is understanding the journalistic process so we know what level of detail should occur for a good story. Could you walk us through the process? And so when we're reading news, we can identify and see maybe a journalist is following that process or maybe it isn't. I've personally read a lot of your articles and I love that you agreed to this interview just because your articles are always well-researched, very thoughtful, and having someone like you explain it would probably help us all. Well, I think the easiest way to describe that is writing a good story is a lot like finding a good investment. And what I mean by that, um, you know, I'm spoiled because my background is, uh, you know, I started in college, I was a journalism major, but then I ultimately spent time in graduate school, um, you know, understanding economic policy and and working on an MBA in finance. So I know the, I know how to approach an investment and and to approach a story at the same time. Uh, But at the same time, we live in a reality today where one simple line from an article can be taken out of context and your entire career can be destroyed. Uh, or you can take one line out of context and a, a, a rival journalist or a, a blog could simply say, well, you know, he, he used these numbers in an article and because of that, uh, you know, there's all these different stories or different academic studies that refute uh, that data, and because of that, it undermines the quality of your story. So there's a lot of accountability in the in, in the in the journalistic process, and you know just as just as a an investor should take the time to read everything that they can, a good journalist or a responsible journalist should take every opportunity to research every single angle of the story possible, and it starts and ends with talking to people. Uh, you know, we just did this story, false profits, and you know there is that there, we're definitely criticizing a lot of individuals for their. I don't want to use the word negligence, but they just people make recommendations today, and they don't back test any, uh, some of their recommendations, or they have very bad, uh, you know, almost 50-50 uh, track records. 
And we obviously are pointing out that that is a problem and we're using the, you know, we're trying to find that solution. But you have to give people the opportunity to defend themselves. Now, in the case of some of the stories we wrote, we're dominated by PR departments who simply don't want to go on the record. But we have to at least give everybody an opportunity to make that uh, a judgment. But when it comes to some other stories, you know, Modern Trader and some of the things that we're doing at the Alpha Pages, we try to be contrarian. We want to write stories that people aren't talking about and get people excited about. And a lot of the best investing opportunities out there start with a contrarian approach. Um, you can start with a thesis. You can start with one simple uh, viewpoint. We did a story on uh, the robot apocalypse that just came out about two weeks ago. And we started with the thesis uh or the question of, are robots displacing jobs? And it starts with the secondary research process. And we spent a lot of time going back into the 1800s and the 1900s uh, on, on different type data points that were uh, written going all the way back to the time of Karl Marx and Ricardo. Now, of course, you talk about Karl Marx, not a lot of people want to talk about him. It's, it's uncomfortable for a lot of economists today. So we have to be willing to be bold and to talk about things that people don't want to talk about. And by opening up that dialogue and opening up that conversation, we truly can discover a, a totally different, unique story that people aren't necessarily discussing. By just starting with those opening questions, we were able to identify um, that one, people, a lot of economists aren't talking about the impact of job displacement, for example, uh, anymore because they don't like to be associated with some of the conversations from the early 1900s. At the same time, uh, we recognize that there are a handful of different economists out there who have been doing research on this recently, cutting edge research that no one is talking about. And we're allowing them to get their voice out there and to really be a part of the 21st century conversation. So there isn't a set plan. When you start, you start with an opening thesis or an opening question, but you research it and you research it and you research it. And you keep asking questions until you believe that you have a good, true understanding of the total ecosystem surrounding the, the topic at hand. Um, and from there, um, you know, hopefully you start a creative dialogue on the topic that you have discovered and you move the process forward that really truly allows individuals to uh, enjoy that type of story, but also to create their own opinions and do further research on their own. Garrett, something you just said really resonates with me, and it was a conversation I was having with a few others uh, in the trading world, is that after 08, a lot of people, especially in finance, are scared to really put anything on record. Everyone says there's no real upside to putting something on record if you don't have to, because when they were sort of investigating traders and all this sort of stuff, a lot of things were taken out of context. A lot of things that traders talk with could be misconstrued as insensitive. For example, in trading, if you say, I made a million dollars, you don't say a million dollars because it's a lot of words. You say, I made a buck. <laughs> and you don't say, I made $10 million, you say, I made 10 bucks. And when you're sort of being indicted or investigated for possibly taking more risk, casually referring to a million dollars as a buck could be misconstrued as the public as you don't really care. To you, it's nothing. And because of this, people don't even know what they may be in the future that they get indicted for. And so they don't want to put anything on record. And I imagine not even just from an accountability of posing a track record, that has really other implications. And when you bring up Karl Marx, a lot of people in finance are staunch capitalists. If you're bringing up someone like Marx, they may look at your publication and immediately put it down. How do you sort of connect these profound ideas by maybe these economists 
uh, in the past who may turn off a lot of people today, but still bring forth the positive ideas. Sort of like what you did with Jim Rogers, where you said, you know, he has these are his positions, yet he said something profound here, and this profound part we can use. So how do you take the ideas of Karl Marx and show how they're relevant today while still maintaining the attention of your audience? I think, you know, it's definitely a delicate issue to talk about certain issues today, like technological, you know, job displacement. This is a conversation that has been happening for 200 years, and every time that we have this conversation, somebody comes along and, and creates a machine that displaces a number of jobs. We have had opportunities and new professions and new industries that have opened up. Um, but it certainly is an uncomfortable conversation because this is something that goes back to um, the foundation of a, of a economic philosophy that has led to uh, significant uh, economic displacement around the world. And in no ways are we sympathizing with the views of Marx. However, we do have to take into account that just because a, a view or an, an argument uh, or economic philosophy is um, has failed so significantly in the past that there might just might just might just be 0.001 percent um, something that we can actually pull from from the theory and ultimately create an, an intelligent discourse about. And I will say this, you know, despite the fact that the Marxist view of technological displacement is virtually any of Marx's philosophies have have long been disapproved by economists. It was Ricardo, uh, David Ricardo, who came up and really wrote about technological displacement back in the 1800s. And Ricardo is the um, is the founder of you know one of the most important discoveries of economics, which is the uh, competitive advantage, which is the basis on which we do all international trade today. Just because you are a capitalist doesn't mean that you can't spend your time really understanding. One, how things in the past affect things today, but also two, spend time to really dive into topics and really have a, a, an intelligent conversation about the merits or dismerits of what's happening in, in the world today. And if you look at you know this this concept of technological displacement, uh, I would argue that yes, you know there will be new industries that evolve over time, but we're at a point right now where technology is moving so quickly. There's so much consolidation. There are so many jobs that are being there's such a shakeup in the inter international finance and job markets today. It's happening so quickly all at once that it does warrant to have the conversation again, no matter how many times it's been debunked. Ultimately, it is an intelligent conversation to have because it, it spurs the greater narrative about what are the new uh, industries that are going. Going to come along. You have sectors all across this country that are being displaced, really, you know, middle class jobs. What are the new things that are going to emerge? And we haven't seen the emergence yet. You know, we're supposed to see, uh, you know, the rise of green jobs in this country. That hasn't happened. It hasn't happened as quickly as we anticipated. Those were going to be the middle class jobs, um, but they're not here yet. And because of that, this conversation really, really will continue to evolve uh, whether people like it or not. So, you know, I, I understand and I sympathize because I'm as free market as, as it gets when it comes to, you know, I, I want fewer subsidies. I want uh, business to stand on its own. But at the same time, we do have to look at our past to really understand what our future looks like. I think that's actually uh, what you just said is really important in trying to find quality journalism is that you want to find a piece that looks at all sides of the spectrum in the current topic being discussed. Uh, oftentimes, you'll see articles that just sort of play to our current sort of political leanings. We all know certain news publications might have a Republican leading or a Democrat leading, but ultimately, we find that sometimes we're very much drawn to articles that have our own viewpoint. But in finance and markets, because there's such a diversity of thought, we really do need to challenge ourselves, like you said, and realize 
just because a philosopher's theories may have not worked out as intended, they may have found certain classifications or certain viewpoints of looking at the problem that are still relevant. The solutions might not be, but the perspective may be. Absolutely. And you know, when you talk about how the media today is skewed in the left and right, um, there was a really great, I, I can't remember who said it, but he said, you know, blame capitalism for that. And blaming capitalism isn't a bad, isn't a bad idea. It's just that it's the notion that there's a market for left and right opinion. There is a market for a specific viewpoint and it's been very successful. And, you know, it's ultimately, it is um, encouraged that ultimately, you know, on the left and the right, media machines are capable of rising and people are able to provide their viewpoints. The real question though, especially for somebody who's in the middle as I am, is that I don't see issues today as left or right. And particularly when it comes to the economy, I don't see issues of left or right. I only see up or down. Either we're going to either be individually successful as a nation and, and as a, a broader economy by implementing particular policies that make it possible for all of us to be successful. And I think it starts and ends with entrepreneurialism, or we're all going to sink under a, a massive hole of government regulation and bureaucracy and crony capitalism that has kind of defined uh, the last 15 years that we have been around. Um, you know, we for finance for people who are trying to understand finance, it's very difficult to to get good information when politics are inserted. Uh, you have to really take a step away from from the day to day of of reading, whether it's you know on the far left, the Daily Coast, or on the far right, Town Hall. Step away from politics when you are trying to make an investment decision. Really just, you know, neutralize yourself. Um, it's important that you understand the geopolitical aspects of, of a trade. It's important that you understand, you know, what's happening in Libya today is that might impact a particular oil company and that, you know, U.S. trade policy is is beneficial. You know, this, this recent trade agreement that they're discussing, that's beneficial to a handful of apparel companies. But that's not the reason why you should invest in a company like Nike or Under Armour. You're going to spend your time really focusing on the X's and O's, the numbers, the balance sheets, um, really dissecting the numbers and understanding the growth potential of the company rather than simply reading a headline and saying, oh, this is going to be beneficial to this company because the United States government is doing something and then moving on. And, you know, when it comes to this concept of, uh, you know, what's happening in the world today with uh, geopolitics or central banks, uh, I think we learned a very valuable lesson when the Swiss bank, uh, Swiss national bank decided that it was not no longer going to peg its currency against the euro. We learned that we have to not take central bankers at their word. And central bankers are part of centralized planning. They're part of government decisions. We simply have to rely on the capacity and the capabilities of an individual company, of an individual trade, and recognize that at any moment, any particular guarantee that is coming from politicians or from Washington or, you know, even broader organizations, IMF and World Bank, that they're not always guaranteed. And we have to we have to keep that in mind and we have to be conservative about that because to speculate on what government is going to do is uh, historically it's a mistake for investors to do. Yeah, and it's great you're saying this. And just for our current listeners may not know what happened to us with Frank, essentially it was pegged at a certain level against the dollar. They unexpectedly removed the peg and the currency moved 20%. And the way FX works, there's a lot of leverage, which we've discussed in other episodes, which sort of led to many of these smaller retail FX firms being blown out. Mm -hmm. What's the reason this has happened, and there's some uh, great topics on this, is that you're finding central banks are having a significant influence in policy. And some people argue it's because governments 
governmental organizations are not moving policy in the right direction. So there's a lot more power in uh, central banks. So what you're finding a current narrative is that a lot of journalists, a lot of media outlets are focusing exactly on what central banks are saying and literally taking computer program, mm -hmm. comparing words to words, looking for differences. And in the end, everyone's taking central bankers at their word. But as Garrett is saying, markets are constantly in flux. Mm -hmm. You can't assume that just because something's happened in the past, it's going to happen in the future. In fact, that's very much not the case. A central banker saying they're not going to do something, you still can't take that at their word. Absolutely. Um, as Garrett is saying, it's incredibly important to sort of remain open-minded. Yeah, and I think that you know that, that, that broader question, Rishi, is you know, how do people, how do investors open themselves to new ideas? And the, the simple answer is this, you just decide to. You simply decide to go out and, and find that information on your own. No one's going to hand it to you. No one, It's not going to come through your RSS feed. It's not going to come from, you know, and, and no offense from podcasts, it's not going to come from one single source. You have to make that decision yourself to open yourself up to, to potential ideas and concepts and philosophies and theories that might make you uncomfortable. You know, that that's part of life, but... Um, you know, if you want to get ahead, you have to really understand a trade or an idea or a company from 360 degrees. Some things are going to be uncomfortable. Some things are going to look great. Um, but you have to make that decision to really trudge through everything in the world today to really fully get a grasp of what's happening and make an actionable decision based on the information that you have uh, acquired through your research. Yeah, and I agree completely. I think one thing I constantly say in my podcast is, especially in the last one is, don't believe everything I say. <laughs> Challenge me. I mean, that is, I'm human. We all make mistakes. It's just part of life. I try my best. Everyone tries their best. But ultimately, my view of the world may be wrong. And it's important for everyone to understand it. And I try my best to keep my opinions out of it, but it's inevitably going to happen. Mm -hmm. So as Garrett is saying, even challenge himself, challenge his articles, challenge everything. And I, I want to bring up one quick story and continue forward that really touches upon Garrett's point is that when I used to work at a big bank, there was someone, a managing director. And a managing director at a bank is one of the most senior titles you can have. Now, this guy's research was pushed by the bank everywhere. This guy almost had a cult-like following. But what the bank didn't market is that for seven years, this man has lost money. For seven years, he's lost money and they pulled his book out. So he's not allowed to manage money anymore, yet they're pushing his research is great. And what the bank didn't know is that on the other side, on the buy side, the hedge fund side, all that sort of stuff, there was a group of people who almost mock his research. When it comes out, they just like mock it and they push it back and forth, mm -hmm. right? But those people aren't going to go to the retail person and be like, hey, don't follow him because they're almost scared of, to bring it back to the accountability of putting their name and saying this guy's full of crap when he could get lucky one day and be right. Mm -hmm. So you have people in the, in the institutional space who know what's going on, but they don't want to put it publicly. So it's up to us individually to come up with our own sort of ideas of thinking. Absolutely. And, and just to highlight you know, your story, which is great, I'll give you another story. In 2008, I was working for a small boutique bank in New York. And a friend of mine was a, uh, a derivatives trader at a very prominent bank in New York. Um, wouldn't surprise you if you could figure out what it is, but I simply won't name it for uh, discretion purposes. But they were saying that oil in, in 2008, in July 2008, was heading to $200 a barrel. And one night I went out with some individuals from that particular institution, and we were had a long conversation about oil, and they were traders, and they said oil's going to 40. So you had a research side uh, of the bank that was saying oil was heading to 200, and then you had bankers on the other side arguing that they had a Chinese wall between their research department and their uh, their trading desks, and they're shorting oil. 
So, you know, there is a there is a fallibility to institutional research that you know, that we certainly cover in, in the article at Modern Trader. But, you know, just having lived it and seen it, um, you know, those are the types of events that happen in your life. If you've if you've been really up close to to Wall Street and understanding the game that it is. Um, that you know, just because a, a bank or an institution is saying that something is heading to a particular price or that there's a target point, it doesn't mean that uh, within their actual within their trading units that they are going that route. Um, you know, if if one bank says yes, you know, we have a fifty-five dollar target on this particular stock, it doesn't mean people at their desks are trading it as in that. That's just simply their research. Uh, that's w- probably one or two people's opinion within the bank. That's their prominent research individual. But there are a lot of people within a bank who think they're smarter than the research team, and they certainly trade that way as well. So, Garrett, this what you're saying brings us to the next point. So, and this is something Modern Trader, the piece coming out, discusses: is that is that on one hand you have the bank research, but on the other you now have this new wave of bloggers coming forth and giving their opinion. And how do you sort of hold everyone accountable when everyone when you have this huge subgroup who's anonymous? Well, anonymous opinion is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, in the rise of social media today, uh, groups like Stock Twits. Uh, and obviously Twitter had followed them with the cash tag um, conversations about individuals' advice out there in the world today. Being anonymous isn't a bad thing because on, in, a, in a group like StockTwits, for example, you have hedge fund managers, you have buy-side analysts who are providing their opinion. You also have individuals who are home day trading. And, it, it, and it's individual data points at, at each individual time, but there are companies that have come along and they've been able to, uh, to crunch this data and really get a bull and bear perspective of the of the market at large. Every piece of data is relevant. Just because one article is is garbage or one recommendation is garbage doesn't mean that it's not valuable. It is valuable to this new generation of algorithmic trading. It is valuable to uh, these groups like OpenFolio and uh, StockTwits and and TipRanks, who take in these individual voices and they're able to actually use structured data to rank them. So let's just talk about a company called Estimize. Estimize is a, is a online platform that allows anyone with an opinion to publish their viewpoint on. Uh, where do they think that a company's earnings are going to be in two weeks? Uh, where do they believe that uh, factory orders are going to be in three weeks? Every single person who believes that they have a good viewpoint on, on the markets are going to submit their information and estimize. And estimize, by crunching the data, is going to be able to provide their own viewpoint, uh, a, a collective viewpoint on where they estimate that uh, a particular stock will be. Now, meanwhile, on the sell side, on the consensus analysts, the Reuters and the Ibises of the world, you know, they're going to say consensus viewpoint of Apple stock on X date is, you know, $1.42 per share or whatever the particular number is. Well, it turns out that Estimize, by having more data, by having more viewpoints, by having more individuals providing their assessment, they're actually able to provide a, a better figure um, that's closer on on average. I believe it's seventy percent more accurate than the IBIS and Reuters viewpoints. Wow. When when a stock when a stock misses estimates on Estimize, the stock falls. But when a stock misses consensus analyst of the professionals at Reuters and IBIS, the stock doesn't necessarily go down. So more more data, more viewpoints is positive. It's just simply a true understanding of how you harness all of that information to make a good decision. Um, you know. On the other end, uh, it, it, it is easy to argue that 
yeah, you know, this guy doesn't have his FINRA license. He doesn't have a CFA. He's trading on, a, on you know, he's on open folio and he's providing his stock insight. But I think that that's just kind of a bias. And that goes back to our article. We did a big survey with Spectrum Group. And we asked traders, who do you believe to be the most credible today in the markets? And we provided all of these different outlets. We asked, you know, what do you think of mainstream journalists and financial pundits and Wall Street analysts providing quarterly updates? And they put Wall Street analysts uh, up near the top. They were in the top three. It was brokers, friends, and Wall Street analysts. At the bottom was uh, social media. And um, the last data point was not just social media and Twitter, but uh, consensus viewpoints that were like crowdsourcing, like Estimize, for example. And they put them down in single digits. Well, it turns out that the bloggers that they found uncredible, that the social media that they found uncredible, that the estimates that they found uncredible, uh, they actually provided a better signal in this sea of noise that we see. Meanwhile, Wall Street analysts are all over the place. You could put a blindfold on them, and they probably throw the dart just as accurately as they would with the uh, with the blindfold off as, as they have in recent years. So really, it's getting past the bias. Because the Wall Street analysts, the talking heads that people view credible, uh, they're not. They're not at all. And the people that you're not expecting, the top 10 bloggers, for example, according to tip ranks, outperform the top 10 analysts. It's just simply moving past this viewpoint, this negative viewpoint that we have on social media and data, and really putting our faith and trust in statistics. Um, that's going to be the next wave that I think is going to happen over the next decade. And it might put a lot of people out of business. Um, it could it could certainly impact a lot of the more traditional media models that people follow today, um, simply because, you know, you look at a group like CNBC, uh, and I have a lot of respect for CNBC. However, their pundits aren't accurate. Their pundits aren't right. And it's funny that they're on television and they're they're providing insight. But the anonymous blogger on Twitter somehow has such a significantly better viewpoint. And I think that all goes back, again, to repeat, that there's a bias against it. Um, you know, you, you will have somebody with 10,000 Twitter followers who is throwing out his recommendations on stock twits. And he has a great track record, but people look at it negatively because they say, well, why would he give it away for free? And in reality, he's trying to establish himself. He's trying to build his audience. He's trying to create a, a credible voice. Meanwhile, the people who are paid to do it, the people who are on television every day, they're not held accountable. There is no accountability. The person who is giving away his insight, he's going to lose his audience. The people who was on, the person who's on CNBC, He's not going to lose his audience because television is such a mega medium in, in today's world. And the, the decision on who is deemed credible is held by the masters of television today. But I think that that ultimately will change. Um, I think it's going to ultimately have to come down to the decision by each individual investor to decide, do they trust a talking head with zero accountability or do they trust the track record of someone who is anonymous and ultimately trust the track record of the technology that uses compounded statistics to find the true signal within the noise? And I could actually continue arguing your point in that banks, they have clients. They're supposed to sell. And so you can look at it at that perspective, too, where someone who's anonymous doesn't actually have to sell. They're just doing it because they find enjoyment. I think investing can be a very lonely sort of art unless you have a community. And this person possibly writing anonymously is looking for that community, looking for that outlet, looking to develop his thoughts. 
and another thing is that I think anonymous data can actually update quicker. In your point where you had said that if a number, if a earnings number misses the the estimate estimate, then the stock falls. But if it doesn't with the analyst number, it may still rise. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is that when a bank analyst puts out research, there's all this red tape before they can launch it out to the public versus you have a sort of a crowdsourced number that people can in- instantly update. And I think that's a really Absolutely. important thing is the speed of information becomes faster. Things become uh, more fluid when you actually add this sort of anonymous information. You've hit the nail on the head there. Absolutely. Gary, this is all great. And some of the accountability companies you had mentioned, like Estimize, are actually in your new modern trader piece. But moving forward, talking about these research pieces, since you're not an anonymous publisher, you're very open with your name and the brand you're building with Alpha Pages and Modern Trader. You don't just publish research pieces that you've been developing for months, but as a financial journalist, you also have to quickly put together a piece for a breaking event that just moved markets. I feel like many of these articles are actually produced by robots. And this is not a conspiracy theory. It's actually a well-documented process. And this explains things when you may be reading a news article, it will say, stocks fall because GDP disappointed. But later in the day, if stocks end up high on the day or they end up positive, then the article switches to saying stocks rise because GDP was higher than expected. So why is this happening? And also, what is your journalistic process for a breaking story? Yeah, I mean, this is this is certainly an issue that uh, continues to stun me on a daily basis. You know, if you follow Reuters, you follow Market Watch, read it at 350, because especially on a day where, you know, maybe the Dow's off 10 points or up 10 points, because if there's just a minor swing in that last five minutes, you're going to see the headline change on those sites immediately. And, and they're on it. But I think it really goes back to to two things. One, I think there's a fine line that people need to understand between marketing and journalism. And what I mean by that is people are trying to get you to click on a site. Um, you know, that's why these, these things that are like, you know, the 10 stocks that will make you rich, the 10, um, the 10, uh, financial companies that are going to, you know, replace banks, uh, you know, it's clickbait and it is a marketing principle. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the article is bad just because it has a click, a clickbait headline. Sometimes there is good insight, but you have to remember that don't make one move or one buy based on just that one article alone. The second thing is something that I go back to at grad school. I was very fortunate enough to, to study economic policy at Johns Hopkins, and I had a great professor named Ellie Kennedy who works um, in Washington, D.C., and is just one of the, the best minds, I think, that I've ever met. He, he really made me passionate about the markets. And it really only takes one teacher, one writer, one book to really make you passionate about the markets. Uh, the, the Graham book, The Intelligent Investor, seems to always be the one that drags most people in. But for me, it was this one professor. And one day during a class, he brought in a very prominent bond manager. And the first thing the, pro- the manager said was, you know, this is all off the record, but I'll tell you this. We don't know why the markets go up or down each day. And what he meant by that was that on the day-to-day ma- nature of trading, on movements up, movements down, it, to assign one particular reason why the Dow moved is, is kind of idiotic. Um, yes, you know, GDP fell on, uh, recently, and the, the Dow fell 100 points. But everybody knew that that was going to happen. The economists had already said a week prior that GDP was going to contract in the first quarter. So it wasn't just one particular thing. 
you know, you have to think about how many people trade every day, how each trade is unique. You know, we all trade for individual reasons. We might agree on why a stock is up or down um, or why we should purchase a particular stock, but we're not going to do it for the same reasons. And when there is a buy or a sell, it, you have to compound that across thousands of stocks and millions of computations and individuals who are engaged in the markets on a daily basis. It is a true you know, consensus of the overall day-to-day, but you'll follow a headline. You'll say, you know, the Dow fell, you know, the, the markets fell. Forget the word the Dow. The markets fell today because oil prices fell. Well, the markets didn't necessarily fall because you know some sectors outperformed others because oil prices were down airline stocks go up every time oil prices fall um, you know some consumer good products go up every time the grain prices fall but to assign that to you know the entire spectrum of the market and one particular issue is just the media justifying its existence we as a human beings want to believe something happened for one particular reason. We look for reasons to justify it, but it's not just one reason. That's a headline. I mean, if you really were to try to tie in why the Dow fell 150 points on a particular date, the headline would probably be about 600 words long. There are a lot of reasons why things go up and things go down. And it's important to take a step back and not just see it for the markets themselves, but see it for the individual trades that you hold and to really have a good understanding of why your portfolio rather than just you know the, the broader Dow went up or down. That's what traders really truly need to understand. Well, that's uh, that's quite blunt. I think it's something uh, many of us in markets know that there are many reasons and the news is just saying this one because they're just trying to explain things. But it's actually really refreshing and I think speaks a lot about you that this is coming from from somebody who's directly involved in the media. But the problem is many of us use these articles that we see on the front page, like the GDP fell, which explained you know the market falling. But it may not be one article that leads us to buy or sell a stock or maybe a market index or anything of that, but it is one of many. And so how do we as a people, like you said, we have this sort of desire for certainty to understand why things are happening, but it could just be randomness. So how do we as people sort of make ourselves less susceptible to these types of articles? Well, I think that's easy to do. It, it comes down to really truly having an understanding of who do you believe is credible, who will you continue to, to hold accountable. I think Tingo does a great job um, on your on your site of understanding what's clickbait and what is not, and, and really creating a community that is willing to hold certain voices accountable for their failed um, insights. And, you know, that's really kind of the thing that we're trying to do with Modern Trader. You know, we have contributors who are back testing their data. And if they're wrong, we're going to hold them accountable. I think that we as as I think the entire investment community needs to hold individuals accountable. That's something that we'll discuss, um, you know, in, in a moment. But, you know, our, our contributors are relying on numbers. They're looking at at things, and they're not relying necessarily on human bias. Uh, a group like Tip Ranks, it's a company that ranks bloggers and investors. So they're able to tell you right now who are the top 25 bloggers, who are the top 25 analysts out there right now. Um, and then they, they, they rank everybody who has ever written a, an article online. So if you've written something and you ma made a recommendation on a stock, you might find yourself at you know, ranked 3,000 out of 4,000 analysts. Um, it, when people realize that that, that that tool exists, they might not necessarily listen to you. So that could be something that will help individuals who are blindly making recommendations to do more research, to really 
hone in on the markets and try to understand what the best possible recommendation is uh, that they can make. A group like Openfolio, which uh, is a, a tremendous platform, it's true transparency. You can you can go on right now, click in LinkedIn or Facebook, and you can see what your friends or anybody out there in the market is trading. Now, it's not going to tell you how much money they've invested or what percentage allocation of their portfolio, but you can see firsthand what it is that they own and again they will rank the top 100 men they'll rank the top 100 women they'll rank the top 100 people between the ages of 25 and 34 and it's all out there it's all out there for you to see and you can you can really follow people who never really had a voice before in the markets who aren't you know don't have that bank name on their on their business card to um, really identify and find good people to help you make good investment decisions. Ido Search is a company, another company that does back testing, and they ask a very simple question: Where have we seen this before? So they will take one single set of data and put it into their system, and they can look and see just based on a particular pattern that happened in the past. Tell you based on that data where you're looking in the future, and it goes back to the most simplistic. Uh, sort of nature of the markets, which is probabilities. Uh, when you're investing, you make calculated decisions based on the probabilities uh, of a particular event happening. Probability analysis is, you know, that that's options 101, right? We really want to understand, um, you know, what what's possible. Is, is the stock going to go up or down based on what we've seen in the past? And we can make a calculated risk based on that. And finally, I think, you know, what, what, what Tingo is doing in terms of, of really understanding uh, that it, it really does start and, and end with accountability. Um, you're talking about, I don't know if you've uh, gone necessarily gone public with it yet, but having the accountability factor ranked into your community of holding individuals accountable, their voices, but allowing others to hold them accountable in terms of upranking or downranking their statements or their quotes, um, you know, people will not blindly make a, a recommendation or not blindly say something if they know that the community at large is going to hold them accountable. Um, because I think that in this notion of doing good or actively doing good in which you have spoken, it's critical that people enter that mindset. And, and, and part of that mindset is knowing that someone is going to hold you accountable in that process. Yeah. And I think we discussed that Anonymous information can be have great advantages over information tied to somebody's name, but at the same time, we do have to find a way to make that anonymous mm -hmm. information, well, both anonymous and uh, where people put forth their identity. We still have to hold both parties, both sides accountable. I think oftentimes, as we've seen, is that when someone puts their name out, they're sort of seen as more credible, but that may not be the case. And um, I actually have gone ahead and publicly launch the Tingo feature where if you're in the chat system where you can uh, actually you can add reputation or subtract reputation based on people and I think the reason why is to your point is that when people are sort of anonymous behind the internet information flows faster but if you look at other sort of websites other sort of message boards I don't have to say them you find that people are all over the place they're playing on emotions they're just going completely over the top and that's not something the Tingo community believes is actively doing good. And, you know, the second iteration, I think, of Tingo is also educating. So if somebody writes something profound in a chat, and I think sometimes ideas, traders, there's studies that show this, traders come up with the best ideas when they're all speaking with one another. And not only can you re add reputation to a user, when you do that, if they say something educational or well-researched, you can actually convert that chat into a permanent page so that it's publicly accessible, can help others. Mm -hmm. 
And I think the other companies you've mentioned, uh, TipRanks, EdaSearch, uh, OpenFolio, these are all companies that are going to be in your new Modern Trader cover story, which I read them. I read about them, and I think they're fantastic companies. And it's good to know that there are many people aligned on this mission to actively do good. Tingo isn't the only one. You're doing it. All these other companies are doing it, and it's so important. But what can we do? What can an individual do? What can we all do to sort of fight these types of programs or sites that are disingenuous a bit? They're just trying to get us to click, you know, clickbait or whatever. How can we sort of fight back? Because especially the new investor, they may not realize something's clickbait or that something's disingenuous. They're still spending time developing their process. So our community wants to do good. And I guess I have two questions. What can we do as a community? And also, what can a journalist such as yourself do? Well, on your end, I think it goes back to the accountability issue and the part of trying to build your community. Yes, you know, individuals who are investing for the first time uh, don't necessarily have access to information that an experienced person, you know, who's been in the markets for 20 years necessarily has. So it's important to continually expand that message. Um, you know, we live in a world today where social media has, you know, really changed the way that information is traded. Um, you know, if somebody is is making a poor recommendation, or, or you recognize that someone has a vested interest in a bad recommendation, um, you should call them out, and and don't be afraid to call them out. I think that we, you know, we as we're part of a, a generation that has everything. Um, and, and we're almost dissatisfied by the fact that we can get so much so quickly. Uh, but we have to kind of change the way that we think and use, use social media. I, I find social media to be a little bit disengaging. I don't like the vitriol that is associated with, you know, anonymous Twitter. But there is a way to be insightful. There is a way to be, uh, uh, to hold people accountable and not do it with, hey, so-and-so, you're an idiot. Um, it's, it's to hold people accountable, but to, you know, take a higher road when you do it. Um, it's important. It's really important that if you want to, if you really want to create a, a marketplace that, and this sounds a little idealistic, but it, it's very simple. It, it really does start with the individual. Um, because when you start to get individuals together who are really focused on finding good ideas, finding investable ideas for the long term, it only takes 10 to 15 people to really create a community that can expand exponentially in this new digital world that people are going to want to come to your site. People are going to want to be a part of, of your community if you continually do, you know, follow your mission of actively doing good. And that, and that starts with both the holding others accountable, but also inviting new people in and, and teaching them how to be engaged in, in the marketplace. Uh, on the journalism side, you know, our goal, yeah, it's to it's to hold people accountable. It's to recognize who's credible. It's to provide actionable insight. And this goes back to three things. Back in March, Bankrate did a survey, and they said, why is it that only 48% of Americans today are have any own any stocks? That's down from 65% in 2007. Well, the number one reason was uh, a lack of capital. And look, we can't solve that. I can't wave a magic wand and make everybody investors. But there are technologies out there like Acorn, the Acorns, that does a fantastic job of uh, taking you know, your, your surplus change from a, a, a credit card acquisition, and it invests for you, and it asks you what your level of risk tolerance is, and they get you engaged into the marketplace 
based on your day-to-day transactions. I think that that's a great tool to help people really understand what it is, you know, how to save 10 bucks here or there, but ultimately become investors. Um, but the other three reasons were, you know, the first was uh, a lack of trust in the markets. Two was a lack of education in this concept of, uh, you know, that the game is rigged. And I think we can answer for that. I think that we can help, um, you know, establish trust in the market if we uh, use the platforms that are necessary that measure who is accountable. Um, I think we can provide the, the tools and the platforms to educate people. Um, it's all out there. It exists. I think it's just simply getting people motivated um, and to get people to change the mindset that everything is rigged against them. Because whether the markets are going up or down, um, the market has a long-term bias to go up. And also, there's an opportunity to make money in any environment, whether whether the Dow's off $300 tomorrow or whether you know we're in a six-year bull run. And I think that's a that's a really interesting survey, the bank rate survey. I think uh, you know Tingo's trying to solve the education, and we're trying to solve the trust. But the game is rigged. All these sort of things, like it, it really does boil down to all these different factors. And Tingo's not the only one doing this. Like you're profiling all these sites that are all trying to do this. And I think that's wonderful that Modern Trader is actively focusing on this because I know going through a lot of financial journalism, we don't see that too much. We see great pieces of journalism. But we don't see other journalists holding other journalists accountable. It's something that scientists are now trying to do where they're trying to peer review their research. And, and sort of you're yourself being a journalist who's in a way doing this is just a, a fantastic goal. And I think it's absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you. So, Gary, I just want to say, I mean, thank you for your time. Uh, to come to a conclusion, I mean, is there anything else you can add? You sounds like you've met all these great people. Yeah. And is there anything we can do to better ourselves as investors or consumers of journalism? Again, everything comes down to education. Um, you know, it's easy to think that that everything is stacked against you. It's very easy to believe that the game is rigged. And look, I understand that if you look at the numbers and you see what's happened over the last six years, uh, you know, really even going back to 2008, 2007, now how much money went to the top one percent in terms of uh, uh, of of the gains from our supposed bull run over the last six years? And it it's easy to get bogged down in that and to say, you know, it's not fair, but look, life's not fair. Um, this is this is this is history. This is six thousand years of civilization. Um, you know, you can you can either be a victim and and follow the victim mentality or you can can empower yourself and really be, you know, take charge of your future. And it, it starts with your decision to do that. Um, and, you know, whether you have $500 in your savings account or you have $10, um, you know, you can, you can start making the, uh, um, the changes today and make the decisions today that, that you're going to really focus on the next three, three decades of your life. Um, you know, read. Read Graham's The Intelligent Investor. Uh, I would recommend that you go and, and visit my friend Keith Fitzgerald's uh, website uh, at, Money, at Money Morning and Money Map Press and read about his 50-40-10 strategy. Um, it is, uh, it's a great strategy that'll, that, that teaches you how to be conservative in a, in a market, in, in an industry, um, that, you know, no matter what the market does. There are, there are stocks to invest in right now uh, that he recommends that are uh, uh, tied, that, that will perform regardless of whether or not the Federal Reserve decides to raise interest rates in June or, or in 2017. 
um, there, there, there is a strategy, and it, you know, it's just kind of focusing on knowing where to start. It's also important that you know how to be patient, and this can be complicated, but I assure you that it's not. You know, every NFL player who comes into the NFL, they, they complain, you know, the game's so fast, the game's so fast, and that's their hardest adjustment. Uh, adjustment. And you know what? In two to three years, the game slows down for them. And the same comes with investing. There's so much information. You don't know where to start. But once you do catch on and, and I really identify with the voices that are important to you and you understand the biases and you understand the strategies that are necessary to get ahead, the game will slow down. The markets will slow down. Um, and you have to know that you're investing for your future. You are, uh, you know, you, maybe you're 21, maybe you're 65, but every decision that you make today will impact the next dec- you know, few years or decades of your life. And there's an opportunity to be found in every single uh, market condition today. So, you know, I, I, I challenge everybody who's listening to, uh, to take control of the, uh, of the opportunities ahead. Uh, really, there is no better time to be an investor. There is no better time to be alive than today. All the technology, all the possibilities that we have, you know, it's a really exciting time. There are new, there are new industries on the horizon. Uh, so, you know, know how to allocate, know how to balance your risks and, and really learn who you are as an investor. And I promise you, you know, you'll look back five years, 10 years from now, and you'll be happy with the decisions that you made to to be engaged in this market. Yeah, and I think pointing out to this technology thing, uh, for those of you who don't know, Garrett's actually becoming a very big, I think, thought leader in a way. Like the way he's he brought up Acorn, that was a great piece he wrote on alphapages.com. And to conclude, I just want to say, Garrett, thank you for your time. This interview is no doubt going to help many, many of us. And if you'd actually like to reach out to Garrett directly, his email address is gb at alphapages.com. That's gb at a-l-p-h-a p-a-g-e-s.com and and Garrett is investigating all sorts of fintech companies whether they target the consumer the everyday person or if you're an institutional player so regardless of your background check them out I've, I've absolutely loved his coverage and I've actually found a few new companies I'd never heard of that have been beneficial Acorn being one of them so to see his current articles just go to alphapages.com and we all look forward to seeing the modern trader piece it'll be out in print on June 23rd at Barnes & Noble uh, direct links to all of these sites and publications mentioned in this podcast will be available on the Tingo blog. So thanks again, Garrett. Thank you, Rishi, and everybody. You know, it's important that uh, you, you continue to help grow the Tingo community. So, you know, just uh, take your time and use your social media or tell a friend and, uh, you know, continue to, to build this message of actively doing good because what you, what you guys are a part of uh, is fantastic. And I'm very, very uh, blessed and honored to be here today to speak with you. And we feel the same way. Thanks, Garrett. Take care. That was our first guest on Tingo Investing, Garrett Baldwin. And if you would like to cover any other topics or if you'd like to see other people on the show, please shoot me some feedback at rishi at tingo.com. That's R-I-S-H-I at T-I-I-N-G-O.com. I hope you like this session. And if you want to hear more, visit tingo.com and come join our community.